Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you again to turn uh, once more to the book of Proverbs. And uh, last week we had a probably one of the best studies that, that I've ever uh, taught or laid out as, as far as the material is concerned uh, on the, uh, the uh, power of the human spirit of man. You know, the book of, uh, the, the, we just finished uh, in people ministry yesterday, we just finished uh, coming through the five wisdom books. And what I've been doing there is coming through the Bible from the beginning and showing them the life concepts that you use in dealing with people. All the examples, all the, uh, all the principles, the stories that unfold themselves right into the problems of the people that you deal with. And uh, when we got to the wisdom books, I told them, I said, you know what? The wisdom books are, are five books in your Bible that are the most unique books that you're ever going to find. Uh, they're really the key in the heart of the central issues of everything in the Word of God. I, I told him, I said, you know what? Well, uh, the, the wisdom books cover every expanse of man's emotions. When you have the book of Psalms, you have a story about a happy man because he's blessed to God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. When you come to the book of Job, you have a so, sad man. So we look at why God's people go through the things that they go through. When you go through the book of Proverbs, you find the wise man. And when you come through the book of Ecclesiastes, we talked about a worldly man. And when you come through the book of Song of Solomon, you find uh, the heavenly man. Every aspect of, of everything that you're going to find is found within these wisdom books. We have spent a lot of time in the book of Proverbs. And, uh, you know, uh, I, years ago, I read a uh, a book by a guy that can't even remember who it was now, but uh, he had some great insight into the wisdom books. And he says, you know what, if you want to really tap into the sufferings of Christ, what Christ really went to on the cross, you got to go to the book of Job. I think Job chapter 30 is probably the greatest single chapter in the Bible on the crucifixion of Christ. He says, if you want to really get the heart of God, Getting God's heartbeat, you got to get to the book of Psalms. Without a doubt, Psalms is uh, the book where a man is, is speaking to God in his own heart. And it's an incredible book. He says if you want to find, you know, you, in the Trinity, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you want to find and understand the mind of the Spirit of God as far as what he's doing and how he's doing it, will be the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to find the mind of Christ, the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. You go through the Song of Solomon. And we talked about that yesterday in the people ministry and had an incredible time of, of laying things out. But if you want to find the mind of God, you want to know God's character, God's makeup, the way God thinks. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 talks about God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. If you want to capture those thoughts of God and understand what God thinks, where Ecclesiastes represents the mind of the Spirit and the Song of Solomon represents the mind of Christ, the book of Proverbs represents the mind of God. We've been two and a half years into this book, which is called The Mind of God. Probably be another two and a half years in it, maybe a little longer, a little less. But even if we went, took five years, I, I must confess to you in my own heart, my own mind, I feel like I failed. How do you have the eternal mind of God and study it and lay it out for just five years? And I know that we're human and I know that as human beings, we can only grasp so much. I told somebody yesterday, you know what, if, 
if we go through the book of Proverbs and we, we go through it in five, six years, whatever it is, and we take six, seven, eight months off, and then I decide, hey, let's go through it again. You realize that we would find more material the second time we ever found the first time. That's the unexhaustible mind of God for you. And that is the unsearchable riches of, of the Word of God. So we saw last week a great study on the human spirit of man, how his spirit will sustain him through the toughest times in life, or his spirit will destroy him. The most fragile part of us as human beings will be our spirit. And we saw the need last week, or at least I hope we did, we saw the need to constantly be reinforcing our spirit. Our spirit will send us down one road or the other. And as a child of God, once we get saved, my soul may be sealed, my flesh never will be, but neither will my spirit. My spirit needs to be cleansed from all the filthiness of the flesh. And the way that you do that is by reinforcing, shoring up that spirit of man with the spirit of God and the things of the word of God. Now today, we're going to move into yet another section of Proverbs chapter 18. And I think today is... We have going to see some of the some of the greatest principles that you're ever going to find for the Christian life. You know, we all struggle with issues. Everybody does, and really, the answer to uh, struggling with the and I think that in, in Christian life, there's some things that we need to struggle with. But you know, we spend most of our time struggling with things that we don't need to struggle with, and we miss all of the things that God has for us. So I want to read Proverbs chapter 18. I want to pick it up in verse 16 and come down through verse 19. It says this, A man's gift maketh room for him, and bringeth him before great men. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh and searcheth him. The lot causeth contentions to cease, and parteth between the mighty. A brother offended is harder be to one than a strong city. And their contentions are like the bars of a castle. James Henley, you're sitting back there. Would you stand up and ask God's blessing real loud on the service this morning? Amen. Now, we're going to look at each one of these, and again, as we always do, we're taking Proverbs in, in sections. I try not to overload into the next section, the thought, try to keep them localized. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But uh, I want to explore each one of these. Each one of these has its own value. And uh, I want to look at them and kind of detail them out for you that you can get from them as you need to apply in your own life. Now look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, A man's gift maketh room for him and bringeth him before a great man. Like most of the Proverbs in the Bible, there's going to be at least two applications. Uh, The book of Proverbs is about a wise man and then about a foolish man. So right out of the chute, you have two applications of the book of Proverbs. And here, uh, this particular verse here, we're going to look at it, first of all, from, a, from a, a, an unsaved man's perspective. And then we're going to look at it from a saved man's perspective. Seeing what this verse really means. And I think it'll give you some insight. Now, for the unsaved world, and unfortunately, many times in Christianity too, but 
Let's just leave it for the unsaved world for now. It deals with men buying their way into the inner circle of circumstances. People, corporations, uh, places where you want to be part of something uh, for reason of advancement. You want to make money. Uh, you want to get a lucrative deal going. So you, you, the verse will go along easily with what we looked at a couple of weeks ago in chapter 17, verse 23, where it says, A wise man taketh the gift out of his bosom to pervert the way of judgment. And we talked about somebody bribing somebody to get something. Here it's along the same lines, except somebody is doing something for somebody that they may be able to get on the inside for some particular reason that they want to, uh, they want to get inside. In a worldly sense, a carnal sense, you know, we see it all the time. You can buy your way into the world of governors, mayors, uh, presidents, kings, princes, corporations, governments. Uh, you know, a man that wants to gain something. He wants to get access to the inner circle of something. Because there's where he can make the money that he wants to make or get the deals that he wants to get. And what you do is you try to get people obligated to you. And if you want to get a good deal on something, make the person obligated to you. Make the person feel like they owe you something. Do something grandioso for them. If you want to get a lucrative deal, take them on, send them on a, a, a month-long vacation to Tahiti someplace. All expenses paid. Make them in your debt. And then when you come back and you want to get something from them, you already have your foot in the door because they feel like they're obligated to you. And many times it works. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, it's a great verse. It's a great principle. It's one that we all should follow. The world will never follow it, but God's people should. It simply says, owe no man anything. Now, I know I get questions on Bible study. Well, you know, that means you shouldn't buy a house and get a mortgage, get a car, get a loan, you know. No, it's not talking about that. Obviously, there's things in life that you, you have to do that to get what you want. It's talking about don't put yourself out there for somebody to uh, be, you'd be obligated to somebody that's going to compromise maybe a position for you. Uh, it's just that simple. And it's true of every aspect in life. That verse says that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that people will make room for you. And if you're in the world and you walk into a, a crowded bar someplace where they're all playing poker, because I guess you could find that in some churches in Kansas City too, but you walk in there and you have all the poker tables there and you got a pocket full of money, you know what they're going to do? They're going to make room for you at that table. It's the way it works. You're at a high-level business meeting where uh, money is to be made and you want to get inside the inner circle. You can buy your way into it. You can get your way into it. In Washington, our corrupt government, you know, the lucrative government contracts that are available to contractors, and they're doled out through the government, through the organizations, through whatever organization that may be in charge of that. The Department of Defense, the Department of, I mean, they waste so much money. I remember back in the 80s that it was come to light that they were, that the government was paying like uh, $20,000 a piece for the caster wheels on the navigator's seat for a B-52. Uh, it, it was exorbitant price. And of course, it all goes down to the fact that somebody gets in there, makes a deal, does something for that person on a personal basis to be obligated, and they get into the meeting. They get into the, the lucrative deals that go on uh, through expensive gifts, giving of vacations, giving of money, giving of cars, things that are right on the edge of being illegal. 
but that's how it works. And many times you'll find that senators, congressmen, presidents, people in power uh, will grant you something that you want if you do the right thing. We just went through a terrible election and a bunch of goofy stuff went on in the thing. And we saw that uh, Hillary Clinton, whether she was guilty of it or not, is immaterial. She was accused of being Secretary of Defense and she's got this huge personal, uh, you know, quote-unquote, uh, non-profit organization to help people around the world. And it came to light that she, she was a Secretary of Defense working with other nations and leaders that it looked like she was gaining, they were getting access to things here by making large donations to her, to her, her foundation. Whether that's true or not is immaterial. This is what happens all the time. Getting the inner circle deal, uh, uh, you know, in a sealed bid that by greasing the hand of somebody and you get it when you bid higher than the last guy, but because of what you did for that person, you get it. Martha Stewart went to, jail, went to prison, went to jail. It wasn't much of a prison. It was a fed club. It was like a country club for federal. But she got it by insider trading. What is that? She found somebody to put her on the inside to let her know when to sell stocks or buy stocks because they were giving her a heads up. Happens all the time. Now, the second aspect will be a good one. It'll be a biblical one. It'll be something that in time you actually want to happen in your life. Spiritually speaking, the verse means that the good gifts that God bestows upon us. James chapter 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, uh, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. It says in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 6 through 8, it says, but every one of us is given grace unto the messenger of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that ascended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And then on in verse 11, he tells you what those gifts are. In the Bible, there's three sets of gifts. Most people get all confused on spiritual gifts. They never see it laid out in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 that there's three separate groups of gifts in the Bible. And he says in Ephesians 4, verse 11, that the apostles were gifts, that the prophets were gifts, that evangelists were gifts, that a pastor and a teacher is a gift. And then we get over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, there's the spiritual gifts that God gives to you. He empowers you with gifts to do for Him. Once you build the character of God in your life and you get the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then you have the gifts of the power of God in your life. And what He's saying here is that if we understand what we have, over there in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 18, it talks about the virtuous woman. And it talks, she says the fact that she, she understands what she has. The Bible says that she perceiveth that her merchandise is good. When you recognize and realize that the gifts that God has given you are for your good and they're good things for God wants to put in your life, when you recognize those gifts as good from God and given to you by God, and then you take those spiritual gifts that God has given you and you care for them, you develop them, you pray over them, you allow God to grow them in your life, you put all that you have in your life into those, 
You apply them, you use them. In time, God will take that perfect gift that he has given you, and he also will allow you to go before great men. You'll see it in the Bible. The greatest example, I think, would be the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. We talked about this Thursday night. It says, that verse says, But the Lord saith unto him, Go thy way, for he, talking about Paul, is the chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And when you go through the book of Acts, you find that this principle is absolutely right. Paul recognized what he had. There's no man in the Bible that dedicated his life more to the gifts that God gave him to be able to preach the Word of God, lay out the Word of God. He knew very clearly what God had saved him for, what his job was, and how he was going to accomplish it. And when you go through his life, you find that this verse is exactly true. In Acts chapter 23, he stands before Ananias in the great Jewish council, and he testifies of Christ. In chapter 24, he stands before Tertullius. Uh, the great orator of the Jews. In chapter 24, he stands before Felix, the governor, the Roman governor, and he testifies before the Lord. In chapter 25, he stands before Caesar, and he gives again a great testimony of what God did. In chapter 26 of the book of Acts, he stands before King Agrippa, and man, does he ever give it to him. This is the great place in the Bible where he says, Oh, king, you know these things that I'm talking about are true. And at the end, when he stood before the great king, you know what that king said? Almost. Thou persuadest me to be a Christian. God will put you in your life when you do what you need to do with the gifts that God has given you. God will allow you to take those gifts to great men. You'll be able to take those gifts that God will put you in circumstances that you never would probably get into. I think in our, in our lifetime, the greatest example of this probably was undeniably a, a Billy Graham. Now, I know that in the last 20, 30, 40 years of his life, or maybe not 40, but the last 20, 30 years of his life, he's pretty much been in apostasy. I get that. But I'm telling you something, you go on YouTube and some of those places online and you type in his name and you can see him preaching back in 1947 and 1948 and 1950 in Madison Square Garden. Let me tell you something, there is no dignity in his preaching. He is spitting, sweating, and he is flat tearing the place up. He's calling it like it is. He's telling it like it is. He's waving his King James Bible. His hair is sloppy all over the place. He's running with sweat. And I love the picture. I love the picture that they have of him when he was young and he was in there. When he's holding the Bible in one hand and a fist up in the other. That's long before the neo-evangelical crowd, the, the money crowd, pulled his teeth. He lost the book. He lost his power to preach. Like Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 8 through 10. But boy, there was a time when God in fact used him. From 1947 onward, God gave him incredible opportunities. You realize that he was the spiritual advisor to over 10 presidents? 10 presidents. He was especially close to Eisenhower. John Kennedy. It's rumored that he won John Kennedy to Christ. It's rumored that he won John John to Christ who was killed in a plane crash. 
Now, I don't know how much of it is true, but there was ever a man in a position before great men to display the gifts that God had given him and give those gifts to them? It was him. He was before Lyndon Johnson, President Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, President Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, and then George Bush, the, uh, the one that we just had here, uh, the son of the father. He was before the heads of states and preached to them and witnesses to them all around the world. He took his gift. He took his gift and God allowed him to take it before great men. That's what God wants to do with you. You know, in my own humble experience, and I don't put myself in any class or category like this, but I want to tell you there's been times in my life when God has allowed me to have some incredible opportunities. I remember back probably had to be in the 90s or maybe the late 80s when we were doing our discipleship program, the same one that you use, and we were going around the world with it. That we had a Bible conference and I met, I met the, uh, the greatest uh, uh, pastor in the greatest church in, in Brazil. His name was Dr. Fernini. And Dr. Fernini was the Billy Graham of South America. Dr. Fernini was the man that uh, when the country was in turmoil, the President of the United States called Dr. Fernini and asked him to go on television and calm the country. Very humble guy. Church of about 30,000 people. Very humble guy. Very basic guy. He didn't live like the preachers up here. Uh, he, he, he was just a very common, ordinary guy. He came to Kansas City and him and I met and we linked up and he saw my discipleship program. At that particular time, uh, Steve Brackeen, who's married to Nicole Brackeen, his Steve's dad was a missionary to Brazil. And he was working with a, a Thomas Gilmore down there, who was another missionary that was real tight with Fanini. And, uh, and so, long story short, they asked me to bring a team down to, to Rio de Janeiro uh, and the capital there and to do a... Uh, to do a, a discipleship thing. So we got the team ready and we all went, was headed on down there. Thomas Gilmore, who was a great guy, King James guy, Thomas Gilmore called me one afternoon and he said this. He said, Dr. Fanini is feeling a lot of pressure about the new NIV Bible. And he doesn't know what to do. He has read your material on the King James Bible and he says he, he's at a place in his life where, you know, he, he doesn't know which way to go. And he says there's a big university down here where they're just destroying everything with the Bible. Dr. Fanini has asked, on the Saturday that we're not out doing discipleship, would you feel okay with going to that university and debating the college professors on the issue of the King James Bible versus the NIV? He said, now I got to tell you, there's going to be 20 of them and one of you. He says, are you, will you be okay with that? And I said, yeah, sounds like the odds are going to be kind of even. <laughs> I said, no problem. We go down there, we do our stuff. And I'll never forget that Saturday morning when Dr. Fernini had put everything out there. He had done everything to get this thing ready. He really wanted to know the truth. He really wanted to see that book in action. 
that Saturday morning, I remember like it was yesterday, the debate was to start at 10 o'clock that morning. I was ready to go, went down there, had a good feeling about it. I didn't matter to me if the 50 of them showed up. Uh, you know, it was one of those things where when God puts you in a situation like that, you just got to go do what you got to do. And I'll never forget as long as I live. I got there and I'm in the back waiting to go. The place is packed. I mean, there's got to be six or seven thousand people there. It's in a big auditorium at this university. And Dr. Fanini, I can see him out on across the thing there. He's arguing with somebody and he is not happy. Come to find out that not one of those college professors showed up that morning. For whatever reason. And Dr. Fanini lost a lot of faith because he had promised that this was going to be something that he had all the pastors there. He had all, it was packed. And he come to me and he said, Brother Bob, he says, I am so ashamed. He says, I feel so bad. And he says, none of the rivals that were going to debate you showed up. And he says, and I, and I don't know what to do. Thomas Gilmore, I love Thomas. Thomas Gilmore, he was in uh, San Paulus is where he was. Thomas Gilmore standing right there. He says to Dr. Fanini, well, I don't see it's a problem, Dr. Fanini. We've got three hours scheduled. Why don't the other guy didn't show up? Why not just let Bob take three hours and teach to everybody here why the King James Bible is the word of God? Absolutely no opposition. If those guys would have showed up, it would have been a dogfight and probably nobody would have got anything out of it. Because they didn't show up. God allowed me to have three hours to lay that thing out. That's over 6,000 pastors, people. Dr. Frenini, at the end of that thing, came up to me. He hugged me and he said, you know what? From this day forward, we will use nothing but the King James Bible in our church. Amen. Now, whether he followed through with that, I don't know. He's dead now. But I'll tell you what. In my own humble way, that's the reality of that verse. I would have never got there on my own. Would have never, who would have thought that anybody, the likes of me, would ever have the opportunity to stand before the great men and declare God's word. But you know what? It's simple. If God will use me, he will certainly use you. And it's a question of the fact that what are you going to do with the gifts that God has given you? God gave you those gifts for yourself, but he gave you those gifts that you'll give them to somebody else. The problem is God's people don't do anything with them. They don't cultivate them. They don't grow them. They just allow them to stay dormant in their life. They never do anything with it so that God cannot put them anywhere. Let me tell you something. One man, one Roman Catholic priest, one man, one man by the name of Martin Luther changed the course of the whole world. Don't tell me you can't. You can because that verse is true. God has given you the gift. He wants you to take that gift and he'll put you before great men. That's just the way it works. Some of you have got a chance to, to witness to your bosses. Some of you got a chance to witness to people that are over you in authority. It, it'll happen. Look at the next verse, verse 17. He that is first in his own cause seemeth just, but his neighbor cometh uh, and, and searcheth him. 
Now, the word neighbor there, we use that a little differently today than they did in the Bible. Just so you know, you find that word a lot. We think of the word neighbor as the person living across the street from you or to the left or the right of you. In the Bible, it's somebody that is just uh, a human being of similar beliefs that you may or may not be associated with, that you, you're friendly to whether you're friends with or not. That's the concept. And uh, if you're a Christian, most of your neighbors probably aren't friendly anyhow to you, so you get that. But this is a great principle, and we'll, it'll go along with what we saw last week in verse 13 about answering a matter before you hear the whole matter. And I've seen this, I've seen this Proverbs at work many times, and I'm sure you have too. I've seen it work in a debate. I've seen it work in a courtroom. I've seen it work in a counseling scenario. And it works like this. You're listening to, you got two people, and they're going to tell their story. The first guy gets up, and boy, he lays that story out about a certain event, and you think that he just knocked it out of the ballpark. You're sitting there thinking, what could this other guy say that's going to undo what this guy just said? And then the second guy gets up, and he doesn't knock it out of the park even farther and discredits everything the first guy said. You see it all the time. And it's a thing where I remember at the, at the National Convention for the Republicans and the Democrats. The Democrats had their first, the Republicans had their second. And I remember listening to the, some of the Democrats getting up and they were talking. I thought to myself, wow, they really did a good job. How, what is a Republican going to say? And then when I heard the Republicans come up, I'm thinking, wow, they just completely dismantled everything that they said. You see it in a, you see it in a court case. The man's on trial for killing his wife. He's got a good attorney. The attorney's there to put a reasonable doubt uh, in the jury's mind because of the fact that uh, he can get off that way. And that's what he's getting paid for. So the guy is sitting there, the, had the trial, you know, and everything, and they're giving their closing arguments, and, the, and the, the, the lawyer gets up, and he looks at the jury, and he says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I want to thank you for your service, for being here today, but I must tell you, this man did not kill his wife. We have victims here. Yes, his wife was a victim. But I want to tell you that this man falsely accused of killing his wife is also a victim. He's a victim of an overzealous prosecutor. He's a victim. I could be a lawyer. See this thing? <laughs> How am I doing? Huh? Am I doing all right? Yeah. Watch me, man. If you need any help, just let me know. Okay. And he says, this guy is, this guy, he could never have killed his wife. He loved his wife. They could not find anybody that they could pin this crime on. And it's a crime that is so heinous and a crime is so terrible that, uh, and I got to be honest with you, honestly, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the first time when you look at a, a, a wife that's been killed, obviously the husband's the first one they look to. We understand that. <laughs> Bob's laughing over there. He's, 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 he's. <laughs> we understand that. But I'm here to tell you, he loved his wife. I got here a stack of cards for her birthdays and anniversaries. I want to read some of these, how much he loved his darling wife and how, how precious she was. This is not the sign of a man who would kill his wife. You go to their home and her, her, their house is filled with pictures of them together on vacation and everywhere. 
This man, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, did not kill his wife. His false accusations by this overzealous prosecutor has put him in a terrible mental state. He's broken. He weeps. He can't sleep. He can't eat. Is that the, is that the mindset of a murderer? Please, I, I, I come to you with common sense to plead with you to look at the case. And this man who loved his wife, who's in such disarray, how could a man have that kind of, 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 of emotion and be so cruel and calloused that he could kill his wife? So I leave you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that this man could have not have done that. This man loved his wife. He cared for his wife. This is a great misjustice, and you must serve justice today. The law says within a reasonable shadow of a doubt, and I have given you that, with a man who has devastated the loss of his wife by an overzealous prosecutor who wants to pin it on somebody so he can make a name for himself. My closing arguments. Sit down. Pretty good, huh? Huh? You like that? Here comes the prosecutor. Now see, that's the verse. You only heard one side of the story. And boy, right now, everybody in that courtroom thinks this guy is innocent. Now here comes the prosecutor. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm here to tell you that he did kill his wife. There's no question about it. And I'm here to prove that you, he did. Can we have the lights, please? Now, I heard, what the prosecu- I heard what the lawyer said, and he did what a lawyer does. And I understand that. He's getting paid to represent him. I have no problem with it. We're here to look at the facts. We're not here to look at love letters. We're not here to write love letters in the sand like Pat Boone sang about. We're here to look at facts. You can't make your basis of your determination of guilty on your emotional feelings right now. But this man is in disarray because his wife was built. This man killed his wife. May I have the lights, please? Here's a security camera that was across the street from the house that we never showed anybody. That took place the night of the murder. Let's start it here. <laughs> Here's his wife, clearly identified, getting out of the car. Freeze it. This here is his wife, clearly identified. She's moving around the back of the car, going to get the groceries out of the trunk. Notice she opens the trunk. Now notice, over here from the side of the bushes comes this man. Freeze it. The man, for a moment, looks up in the direction of the camera. It is her husband. He comes up behind her. You can see the knife in his hand. He puts his arm around her neck, pulls her over. He stabs her in the neck. He brings her to the ground. And then, watch it, he repeatedly stabs her 30 more times. I'm sorry that this is so graphic. I'm sorry I had to show that to you today. But I could not let this case go to, go to the jury based on a bunch of flowery cards that somebody wrote in the pretense of the reality of you just saw him taking a butcher knife and killing his wife unmercifully. See how one done did the other? I could be a good prosecutor too, couldn't I, huh? 
Yeah, I've had my share with those guys. I don't need them. <laughs> but that's the verse. That's the verse. Now, here's the principle. Get a little fun with it. Here's the principle. You can never get a complete, absolute accuracy on anything from one side. Last week, we saw the verse that said, hear the whole matter. Now, you take your Bible. The greatest value of the Word of God, and you may not even think of it this way, but the greatest value of the Bible that you have in your lap today is the fact that it was not written by one man. There's no other book, no other religious book, no other writing, no other, no other religion on the face of this planet that has that quality to it that our Bible has. The Bible was written by more than 24 different men on three different continents through the space of 1,900 years. And yet it completely goes together in every way, in every aspect, and it matches and it goes along with its common theme from Genesis to Revelation. No other book on earth, religious or secular, can claim that. Now, that's a great key to understanding the cults. Well, we want to make a big deal about the cults and delve into everything about them. Let me tell you something. This right here is the greatest understanding thing why the cults are fake and phony. They all were put together by just one man. The Jehovah Witnesses around 1840 were put together by a guy by the name of Russell, last name Russell. A little bit later on, a guy Rutherford got into it with him. The Mormon church was started by one man, Joseph Smith. The Seventh-day Adventists were started by William Miller. The Church of Christ was started by one guy, Alexander Campbell. Unity, as we know it today, was started by Charles Fillmore. Christian Science, you see the little reading rooms all around the place. You can always use the bathroom there if you can't get into a restaurant someplace. <laughs> Mary Baker Eddy. And the great charismatic movement, the greatest Christian heresy on the planet today, was started with Amy McPherson. One person in each case. Now, New Testament Christianity, the real deal, was not put into play by one man. No, no. The book of Acts, the beauty of the book of Acts, we talked about it Thursday night. Oh, the book of Acts and what it does for you in defining the thing down through church history. When New Testament Christianity started, it didn't start with one man. It started at a church in Antioch. You say, well, the Apostle Paul, he had the, yeah, he may have gotten the, 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 uh, uh, the mandate to take it to the world, but when you first find Paul after his conversion, he's in a church already that's teaching New Testament principles. He's in Antioch. He's already there. They're going to town. This is where, in Acts chapter 11, they're first called Christians. It wasn't some guy that said, hey, I found New Testament Christianity. I'm going to do this now. No, no. It started with a body of believers that God put into a church, and it was born within the heart of a church, which is God's program for the new age. Now, here it comes. You don't want to miss this. In the book of Acts, the concept of Christianity was born in a church. And then it went to men. In a cult, it starts with a man, and then he starts a church. See the difference? 
The biblical way is for it to start in a church, God's program, and then that church takes it to men. When it's a cult, it'll start with a man, and then he has to start the church. (laughs) Makes it so much easier. Now, that's the biblical way it works. You get that out of the book of Acts. But you never can get, you never can get the full facts by just one opinion. When I study what I've studied over my life while out the Bible, I never just read one man. There may have been one man or two men that I trusted in my reading more than the others, but I never just read one man. That's a very dangerous thing. I probably spent 10 years of my life studying church history. I knew we need to have church history down. Maybe, well, I'm still studying it, so it just was an ongoing thing. But I dedicated at least 10 years to it. I probably read over 200 books on church history. I told the kids yesterday in people ministry that history is a lucrative thing to study. Because you got one man who gets it, he, re, he sees history, he evaluates history, he interprets history, and then he writes about history. So in actuality, when you're getting what he's getting, you're getting based his opinion on it, which may be good, it may be right, but it also, he wasn't there when the events took place. I must have read 200 books on church history. I read everything I get my hands on. When I came to the understanding of the issue of the King James Bible, I think people think sometimes that, you know, that I just, you know, get this idea someplace years ago by Mel Shabaka or Peter S. Ruckman, and that's what I ran with it. You're out of your mind. I read 300, maybe 400 books on the issue of the King James Bible. More of them against it than for it. I teach dispensations. I must have read 30, 40 books on dispensations. I teach Bible doctrine. I, I, I probably went through in my young life 500 different books, pamphlets, and articles on doctrine of the church in the Bible. But I always did one thing. No matter how, who I read, I always understood that they were fallible. I knew that the writers of history wrote from a human perspective and they could have error in it. I realized that every man who would ever, whatever he said about whatever he was teaching, he's human and he can make a mistake. So I read all of their material. I I digested everything they had, but I always had an absolute baseline called the word of God that I bounced it off of. When I studied history, I knew that God in the Old Testament had a nation under the kingdom of heaven. And in the new nation, he, uh, in the New Testament, he had a, he had a body uh, in the kingdom of God. And I knew that there's two landmarks in the Bible. I realized that God did everything around both landmarks, whether Old Testament or New Testament. That was my baseline. And whatever I read, whoever I read, wherever he took me, no matter how good that it looked, it always had to come back to the baseline. Because the baseline will never lie. The baseline is absolute truth. And that's what you have to do. That's called getting understanding in the Bible. Now we hold that the King James Bible is the Word of God. Make no apology for it. Preach on it all the time. Talk about it all the time. Teach classes all the time. But I got to tell you, when you lay it out, the case against the King James Bible looks pretty good and convincing. There's more than 300 books out there that will try to pull you away and get you to see why the King James Bible could not be the Word of God. And I've read every one of them. And the verse says that the first guy that gets up, he sounds good, but you got to get the other guy to get the perspective. (coughs) And, And I'll tell you, 
The argument against the King James Bible looks really good right up to the point when you lay out <coughs> Sinaitis and Vaticanus, the Roman Catholic Church, Westcott and Horton and all the crowd that goes along with it, then it doesn't look too good. That's how you got to do it. <coughs> That's what the verse is saying. Always using the Bible as the baseline. The baseline of truth. Look at verse 18. The lot causes contention to cease and parteth between the mighty. Now this is a simple one. Won't take us long with this one. It simply means there's a very simple, uh, a very, con very simple concept here. Who goes first and who goes second? Who goes last and who goes first? The idea that a dispute or an issue can be settled by chance. Toss of a coin. It's a Super Bowl. They both want to play. You can't have the, say, the ref say, well, you get to go first. That ain't going to work. You can't take a vote in the crowd. That'll never work. You take a coin, and you flip the coin up in the air. One of the captains calls heads. It hits the ground, and whatever it is, solves the dispute who gets to go first. We see it in dire situations where... <coughs> You know, you're in an airplane and it's flying along and it's got engine trouble. And a captain comes back and a co-pilot says, hey, look, we got to ride this plane down. But here's the problem. We're going to crash. We got five people on board. We only got four parachutes. You know what you do? You draw straws. Short straws takes the ride. I only know one parachute story about an airplane that's pretty good. Five people were flying on an airplane. One was a great athlete. One was a great movie star. One was President Obama. One was Billy Graham. And a little 11-year-old girl. Pod came back and said, we're going to crash. We got five people on board, but only got four parachutes. The athlete stood up and said, well, I got to have one. While people pay millions of dollars to see me play, I, I, I make so many people happy. He grabbed one of their shoes out the door. <laughs> the movie star said, well, I've been to movies all the time and everybody knows who I am. I have to, I have to, I have to be, I have to be part of this. And so he, he grabs his shoot and he's, he's out the door. President Obama says, well, I'm the leader of the free world. I got to have a parachute. I have got to have a parachute. He said, people, the whole world will fall apart without me. So he grabs one and out the door he goes. Billy Graham looks down at the little girl and he says, sweetheart, I've been in the ministry all my life. And he says, I've lived a full life. You take that last parachute. He said, we had an athlete that had to take his and we had a movie star take his. Obama said he was the smartest man in the world and he had to take his because he had to save the free world. Look, I preached the gospel all my life. Honey, you take the last parachute and you go out and I'll ride the plane down. She looked up and she said, Mr. Graham, thank you for that, but we don't have to do that. He says, why is that, sweetheart? She says, the smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. <laughs> short straw. Pick a number from one to ten. See, that's what we do. And it, causes, it makes dispute cease, you see. Because most people accept the fact that there's no, no trickery in that. Unless you got a two-headed coin. Now look at verse 19. 
And here now is where we're going to wind up today. And this is probably one of the most telling and profound verses in all the Bible for you and for me. Verse 19 says, A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And their contention are like bars of a castle. Now, if there was ever a verse that will stand as the greatest issue within the church today, probably outside the Word of God, it will be the verse and will be this particular issue. You know, back in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul made it very clear. He's dealing with issues with them. And they're absolutely stupid issues. They're arguing over who baptized who. They're arguing over who won who to Christ. They're going through every petty little thing that that God's people can go through. And he says to them, he says, you know what? He says, you walk as men, but you're a bunch of spiritual babies. And we have reached that same place in Bible Christianity today. God's people get offended by everything. They do. It's unbelievable. They get offended by everything. This is why pastors don't preach anymore. He has to have a big church to get a big income. And if he preaches hard, he'll offend some people and they won't come back. Laodicea and Christianity is made up of the most hypersensitive, selfish, neurotic, prideful, arrogant, touchy-feely people you ever met in your life. They have a judgment on everything. And And I know, I know Romans 14 and 15 talks about not being a stumbling block to the weaker Christian. I get it. I know that 15.1 says that you that are strong out to bear the affirmatives of the weak. I get it. But come on, man. At some point, you got to get past some things in your life. You realize that there, there, there's some bigger issues out there Amen. than the color of choir robes? <laughs> do you do realize that? Babies do three things really well. They eat a lot, they cry a lot, and they make a mess a lot. Either throwing up or the other end. You take any church in America... God's people will judge everything about what goes on in that church service. Well, it's too hot. It's too cold. Why do they have the fans on? The lights are flickering. I'm getting vertigo. Well, I just don't get anything out of the service anymore. Well, I don't fit in. I don't have any friend. Bible says he that have friends must show himself to be friendly. Somebody said to me one time, well, I don't get anything out of the service anymore. I said, what did you put in? Nothing. You know, you only get out of something what you put into it. Let me ask you a question. Back in the Old Testament, you had a woman that was poor, remember? And she needed oil, didn't have any money. So she went to the prophet of God and the prophet of God said, here's what I want you to do. You go home and you get every pot and pan you can find. And then he says, not a few. And you come over, and as many pots and pans as you can bring, as many bottles, containers, whatever you got, whatever you bring, I'm going to fill up with oil, and then you can go and make your living off of what I give you. You know what the problem with some of God's people is today? You came here this morning, and you brought a thimble. You came here this morning empty-handed. Some of you, I watched you roll up. You had to come in the back door because you were rolling in 55-gallon drums. <laughs> you want to fill it up. You want everything that God has for you. You want everything that God wants to give you today. 
You're going to get out of it something because you're willing to put something into it. God, people aren't willing to do that. They want to be entertained. They don't want to come to a church like this. They want to come to a church where there's a rock band. They want to come to church where there's, afterwards, you can go to the cafeteria. Or you can go out and if you want to play racquetball, you can go there. They want to go to a church that when they get up there, everybody's singing and praising and everybody's having a great time. And, and they want to go there where they feel comfortable and it's nice, warm, and fuzzy. They want a pastor up there that'll tell you how good you are. You don't need anybody to tell you how good you are. You do a pretty good job that yourself. Well, there's so-and-so. She hadn't talked to me forever. You know what I do when I see somebody that I know has got an attitude against me, like you? You know what I do when I know somebody's upset with me about something? And they're avoiding me. I'll walk right over and say, man, it's good to see you today. How are you? Good. Good. Do you have any money? I need to borrow $5 till payday. Can I? I no. I mean, you're not, you're not, you know, I mean, come on. I've had, I've been running around here on mornings trying to get everything done and do things. I don't do much anymore because I just sit back there. Let it all run. But there have been times when I was running like a chick with my head cut off. And I found somebody was upset and got a nose bent in a joint because Bob didn't shake their hand. Well, if you'd have stuck it out, I'd have shook it. Come on. All right. They'll judge everything about what goes on. They will judge the people. They will judge the service. They will judge the choir. They will judge the special. They will judge the pastor. They will judge the message. They will judge who prays. They'll judge the people around them. They'll judge the visitors. They'll look around and put people where and make judgments on it. They'll judge the ministry, the length of the service, the temperature. They'll judge everything except themselves. That's Christianity today. Contention because of being offended. People get offended sometimes of where you go to eat. I had a guy, I've known several people like this, that if you went to a place that sold booze, they, they got offended. I had a guy one time say, oh, I can't believe you take people over there that uh, goes and eats over there at that place because they have a bar there and they serve, they serve booze over there. And I said, well, man, nobody's drinking. And he says, yeah, but it's just a bad testimony. I said, well, you buy gas at a gas station that sells beer, doesn't you? Lotto tickets? I mean, what's the point? What's the point? People are weird. I've had people get upset, honestly. I've had people that had a contention in a church and got offended because they decided to move the piano from that side to this side and didn't ask them for a church vote. I'm not kidding you. And in most churches, God help you if you're a visitor and you sit in Aunt Frances' seat. <laughs> I got a buddy of mine uh, that pastors the church up in, up in, up in uh, Illinois. And he called me one time and he, he said, you know what? He says, I just went through the stupidest thing last week that I ever went through. He said, we had a big church fight, big church this. It was a mess. And I'm thinking it was over doctrine of the Bible or doctrine of the, or something, you know. You know what it was? The deacons had had their coffee cups locked away in a cabinet down there. And somebody moved the coffee cup out of there and put them someplace else without asking the permission of the deacons. It was going to split the church. A church like that needs to be split. 
How better yet, blow it up, back a wall, back all over it, fill it up with dirt, and rape buffalo on it or something, man. I get emails from people when they, when they watch in. And, you know, and it's all subtle stuff. And we had a thing where we were talking about a Halloween party. And I got a nice tech email from somebody that said, you know what? We appreciate your church. We appreciate that. But we, I'd really like you to, to pray that God would reveal to you how demonic, how demonic Halloween is. <laughs> is it any more demonic than Christmas? Easter? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are all pagan Roman gods. January, February, March, April, May. You don't have the problem crossing those out on your calendar. They're all pagan gods. Where do you draw the line? No, better yet. Where do you grow up? Amen. You think I believe in Halloween? You think I care that your little kids drag up like demons? Why not? They act like them all year long. <laughs> I've had people call me up on the phone and say, we're thinking about coming to your church. And I said, well, that would be fine. You'll be welcome. Do you have a Wednesday night church service? No. Oh, well, we're not coming. Good. It's good that you don't come on Wednesday night because we wouldn't be here anyhow. So it's good. It's like Wednesday night is the key to being a real church. I've had people say, uh, brother, you have a Christmas tree in your house? Only once a week, only once a year. If you ever saw our Christmas tree, you would never preach on it. Our Christmas tree looks like it's got a bad case of AIDS. It is the ugliest tree you have ever saw in your life. I mean, the dog won't even lift his leg on it. That's how bad it is. It is the ugliest tree. And if you've been up in the upper room there for counseling, it's over in the corner all year long. You just didn't recognize it. You thought it was the next person coming in who had HIV or something like that. It's a mess. It's, it's terrible. Gone are the days when you go out and chop down a tree. Like on Christmas vacation, you know, you're not gone of those days. Back when I was growing up, we'd do that, but only last three or four days, mom and dad would get in a fight. I can't remember Christmas where they didn't get in a knockdown drag out, and one or the other took the Christmas tree and threw it out in the front yard. <laughs> this is why I'm the way I am. <laughs> you kids think you got it tough. You kids, no, you do. You think you got it tough. I'm going to tell you something. You want to know why I'm weird the way I am? When I was 9 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, and I didn't get good grades, you know what my mom did? She made me, she, I came home, got a bad report card. She made me put on one of my sister's dresses <laughs> while the kids were coming home from school and stand out on the front porch and let them laugh at me. <laughs> Cut me some slot, man. <laughs> No, I do not wear it anymore. I want to make that clear. I've seen people get upset because somebody was asked to do something and didn't ask them. I ain't kidding you. I had, I told this story yesterday. Most of you old folks know who Harold Massey was? Remember Harold Massey, blind guy? 
Actually, God and Planet. Well, they had a group called God Country 4 back when. Like you guys. You're a lot better, but they were good. Uh, uh, Harold was blind, but he played the guitar. Charlie Zan- Van Zant uh, was a guy. He played the guitar. Uh, Penny Hansinger's sister, your aunt, sang in it. You remember who else sang in it? Because you can't have God Country 4 with only three. Oh, uh, maybe fourth one died. But anyway, we were having a, we were having a, I think it was a Valentine's Day thing at the church. Nothing churchy. Nobody preaching. Just a fun time. And they played. And in that sitting there, there was one, it was a pastor from up north uh, who was one of the most uptight guys, legalistic guys you have ever met in your life. I mean, he was something else. He was, he was terrible. He was something else. Anyway, they had played a little song. It was based on Johnny Cash's I Walk the Line. Some of you remember hearing it. And it, it, it had a little line in it that, okay, it, I wouldn't have you guys sing it on Sunday morning. But it wasn't so risque that it, you, know, it, it, you lost your salvation over it. It was funny. You know, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. You know? Uh, I keep, I keep my what all the time. You know, and at the end of the thing was, if you're not mine, don't pull the twine. I mean, come on, it was no big deal. It was funny. I'm standing up there with Harold Massey at the end of the thing there, and I was laughing with him. This pastor comes up, and he says, "Brother, you always know when they always start to brother. That's your first giveaway. You're in trouble, brother. I want you to know, brother, that that song." absolutely offended me beyond belief. I said, I just cannot believe, I am so offended at that song. I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, do you, would you ever laugh about anything in life? I mean, it is crazy. You know, and I, got, and I told him yesterday, 15 or 16 years later, in this legalistic mindset of being right and being offended by little things like that, you know what happened? His daughter, who was 19 years old, was so fed up with it, so fed up with that phony Christianity that she was going to leave the home and go someplace else. Get out of it. And her mom was so distraught because of the fact she could not face dealing with it. The mom took a gun, killed the daughter, and then killed herself. And they're right, and Harold was wrong. I'm telling you, man, people are nuts. Just nuts. I've seen, as I said, I, I've, seen them, I've seen them come to a service and say, well, it's too long, or it's too short. The preacher's too loud, or he's not loud enough. Well, he steps on too many people's toes, or he doesn't preach, or he's preaching about me. Amen. You have to answer that one for yourself, man. Preacher tells too many jokes, or he's so boring to listen to. I've seen them get offended and leave the church because they decided to get new choir robes and they got into a fight over the color. <laughs> American Christianity is a mess. I've seen them complain about nothing going on in the church. Why don't anything ever go on? We don't have any ministries. They complain about that. Then God comes down and does something. All my life I've seen this. And a bunch of people get involved. They don't. You know what it is then? Oh, it's just a bunch of click people getting involved in. <laughs> you can't win. 
You can't win. My favorite bumper sticker is kill them all, let God sort them out. <laughs> now the answer to this verse and the way Christianity and churches are today will be found in one great verse. And I won't give it to you in a few moments we got left. It's found in Psalm 119 verse 165. It says, grace, peace, have they that love thy law, nothing shall offend them. Wow, what a verse. What a defining verse for 20, 21st century Christianity. What an eye-opening principle for a Christian who gets offended over nothing or over everything. You know, I'll go back a couple of verses. Then verse 17, he that is finest, uh, he that is first in his own cause, seemeth just. You know, you being offended seems really okay and really good to yourself right up to you hit Psalm 119, 165. Now, I may say this. I have a lot of problems. I have a lot of issues. I'll be the first to admit it, first to tell you. If I were you, I wouldn't follow me across the street. I have a lot of problems. I have a lot of issues. But I'm going to tell you one issue I don't have. I don't get offended by anything. I really don't. Hey, I've been in preaching services. I've been in preaching services where the guy preaching knew I was there and deliberately took a cheap shot from me from the pulpit. So what? If that's all you got, man good deal. Hey, I've been invited to do things and then uninvited to do things. I told the kids yesterday, one time that couple came to me and said, we wanted you to marry us. And I said, okay, mom and dad, we're okay. And that's great. So we had the rehearsal that night. I did the whole rehearsal. They're going to get married the next day in the afternoon. I get a call, come to the office about two o'clock that day. And the dad comes in and he says, you know what? We've decided we're not going to have you do the wedding now. Okay. I wanted to go squirrel hunting anyhow. It's all right. No problem. I'm not going to get offended by that. I'm just not. It's just one of those things that I've been in Bible conferences where I thought the whole thing was an absolute idiotic joke. But you know what? So what? I've heard a guy preach and thought that he was, he was a phony from head to toe in everything he was saying. And I thought to myself, this guy is an absolute clown. But you know what? I still got something from him. I mean, even a broken clock is right twice a day. What am I going to get offended about anything? I've had guys try to undermine my ministry. Hey, let me tell you something. If you, anybody here, or anybody in the world can undermine this ministry, it needs to be undermined. If it doesn't stand on what it's built on, that one person can knock it down, it needs to be knocked down. It does. I don't worry about those things. I just don't. I never take it personal or get offended. You know why? Because I got a book that makes me bigger than that. I got a book that puts me above the circumstances. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. What a verse. I preached one time, and a lady came up to me afterwards, and uh, you know, you can see her a mile away what kind she was. And she came up, and she said, well, Brother Alexander, she says, I want you to know that uh, I was offended by some things you said in your message today. And I said, well, ma'am, I'm really sorry about that, and I'll be glad to try to help you. But let's lay a verse down so we can work on. Great, great peace are they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Now, what was it I said? It had nothing to say. A brother offended will be harder to be won than a, than a strong city. And the contention are like the bars of a, of, a, of a castle. Two key words in that verse that make this and help us understand the problem. The first one is a strong city. It's a strong city, but Proverbs 25, 28, it has no walls. 
The person runs on their emotions. There's no Bible reinforcement of their spirit. So they get offended over stuff that nobody else should get offended over. Hey, I want to tell you something. In Christianity, there's some things to get angry about. There's righteous retribution. And there's times that you ought to be down flat mad about some things that go on. But never be offended over something stupid. And if somebody does something grievous, how did it affect me? I'm not offended. You think it takes me out of my book? You think it takes the peace that God has given me, the great peace that I have? Nothing, nothing does that with me. Bars of a castle. Persons are held prisonable by their own emotions. Those little bars, looking out a bar, each one of those bars represents an issue in our lives that we can't break out of, that hold us back emotionally, that allow us to get into circumstances and situations that, that we ought to live above. My job as a pastor, I never criticize you. I, I, some, of, some of God's people in my life and my ministry have done some of the dumbest things I could ever see in my life. You know why I never criticize them? Put their list of dumb things up against my list of dumb things, and I'll probably lose to them. We all do dumb things. You come, come to the place where when you see somebody like that, you don't get turned against them. You don't become their enemy. You, that's what you do when you take it personal. That's what you do when you get offended. In my job, and my business, I can't afford for you to offend me. You know why? My job is to minister to you. Amen. And when I see you struggling with something, I'm not going to castigate you. I'm not going to come down and clobber you. You know what I'm going to do when I see you stuck in that castle with those bars? I'm going to bake you a cake and put a hacksaw blake in it, and I'm going to break you out of jail. My job, take the word of God that God has given us and reinforce our spirit. Make you better than you are. Get you higher than you are. You know, we just went through one of the God-awfulest elections in the history of this country. There was more mud slung during this time than ever before. I mean, it was like I got so sick of it, my head hurt. I mean, everybody was dragging up dirt on everybody. I mean, I mean, they wanted to go after Hillary. They wanted to go after Bill. They wanted to go after Trump. There was people that spent millions and millions of dollars. I mean, all the Republican candidates that were vying for the, for the office to get elected, they hated each other. I mean, always in history, they, they go back and forth. Why? But they were killing each other. I mean, to imagine it, that uh, uh, some of the things that they said. Some of the derogatory remarks they made. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was unprecedented. Calling Marco Rubia names. Calling the other guys, John Kasich. And then they got so bent out of shape about it that some of them didn't even come to the, to the convention. And I watched that. And I watch that. Then I see that these guys who, during that time, they just are always killing each other, slandering each other, saying some of the worst stuff you could ever see. When it's all over, they're all buddies again. Now Trump's up there, and he's going to put Romney in here. He's going to put this guy in here. Everybody will get a spot. Everybody's lovey-dovey now. The only ones that can't get lovey-dovey are God's people. They're the only ones that can't. The world can do it. But God's people can't. It's based on the principles of the Word of God. They should dictate how we deal with issues. 
our ability or our inability to keep the issues of life in perspective. Having the great peace that Isaiah says in 26.3 passes all understanding. That will keep your hearts and minds because your mind, there it is, is stayed on thee. For 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, talks about bringing every thought into the obedience and captivity of Christ. Coming to the point where the principles reinforce your spirit. But the Bible really doing a work. God's perfect work in our lives. And now you live and stand and minister and do the work of God far above the petty little things that are all about you. And they're always going to be there. There is always going to be somebody you'd like to accidentally run over with with your car. I hate to say that, but you know it's true. I could lie to you and be up here and say, I never feel that way. But let me tell you something. That's why God put reverses in cars. But when you fall in love with the book that God gave you. It will take you so far above and so far away from the pettiness of this world. You'll begin to see the real issues, the real priorities. And you'll not let yourself get taken out of the game because you get sidetracked with stuff that, at the end of the day, just doesn't really make any difference. I told last time in the people ministry, I told this story. It's always been a favorite of mine, very personal. When I was about, my dad was a hunter, fisherman. I'm not much of a fisherman. I don't have the patience. If I could fish with hand grenades, that'd be good. But I, I, I used to love to hunt. My dad was a great hunter. My dad was a great shot. He grew up in Maryland, and they had the, lived in a log cabin, and they had to hunt for their food to survive. There was like 10 boys in a family, and the dad died early, and it was just a mom. It was incredible. And they all were great hunters, great, great shots. And my dad, he loved to hunt. And I remember when I got to be about 12 or 13, you know, I wanted to go. And I got old enough where I was responsible. And he took me out one time and let me use one of his 22 rifles, you know. And I actually got a rabbit. It was by accident, but I actually got the rabbit. But he said for Christmas that day, and I must have been probably 14 years old, they bought me my first shotgun. It was a single barrel 20 gauge Winchester Model 37 youth model, just for little guys like me. I was little back then. <laughs> and so... I was so excited. My mom and they got me four or five boxes of shells, and I wanted to shoot it so bad. My dad said, oh, come on. We'll go out this afternoon to the dump down here, and we'll practice a little bit with it. <clears throat> so we went out there. <clears throat> my dad would throw cans up in the air, and I would try to shoot them, you know. He found a wheel, and he put me back here, and he, he got over here, and he put the wheel in the ground that it was rolling like a rabbit, you know, and I'd shoot that. I shot that gun about six or seven times. And I just said, Dad, I don't think I can do this. And my arm was just, my arm, was, it had a butt pad on it that said Winchester. It was Winchester stamped in my arm. It really hurt a little guy. 20 gauge, it kicked pretty good. And I was crying, you know, and, I, and my dad, you know, he, he felt bad. He said, well, he says, it, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. So, you know, we, we I just said, that's all I'm going to do today. And my arm was black and blue for the next week. So we went rabbit hunting about a week and a half later. And it was a gold crisp morning and. We went to a place that we always liked to go, and he liked to fish there in the summertime, and the old guy, you know, we'd always drop him off a couple rabbits, and he'd let us hunt up there. So we're walking through this bean field, you know, way up there on the other side, and I got the shotgun on my shoulder, you know, and my dad's next to me over there. All of a sudden, right in front of a big old rabbit runs out, and I 
put up on him. I fired too fast the first time, went behind him, put the shell popped up, put another one in, got him the second time and just rolled him right over. My dad come up and put his arm around me and he said, man, that's a good shot, son, especially on the second one because most guys would be so flustered they wouldn't get the shell in and that rabbit would be gone. We walked over, that rabbit was dead, you know. And <clears throat> My dad said something to me that I never forgot. I'm looking at the rabbit and my adrenaline's really going, you know, my first rabbit with my new shotgun, you know. And uh, my dad says, how's your arm feel? And I said, well, you know what, Dad? I, I, didn't, I didn't, didn't feel anything. I, I didn't even feel the recoil. I said, I said, I wonder why that is. The last time we were practicing, I said, it killed me. I said, I fired two rounds in this, and I don't even know that it even, I didn't even remember feeling anything. He put his arm around me, and he said this. <clears throat> he said, so remember that. This is the way it is in life. There are going to be things in life that are going to kick you. And the things in life that will kick you will always hurt you more when you're not focused on something. When you're not focused on something, you'll feel the blunt force trauma of that kick a lot more than when you're focused on that rabbit running over here. You didn't even feel the kick. You know how you get past being offended and getting upset about stupid stuff? Get focused. Get focused. Stay focused on the things that mean something. Stay focused on the things that, that, are absolutely, uh, that are absolutely imperative to the Christian life. Stay focused on the things that, that will carry you through. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. And that's what you've got to do. I learned that lesson when I was a 14-year-old boy. I have never forgot it. There are times in my life that I've given that to people. There's times in my life when I've used that in myself, when I realize that something hurts a lot more when I'm not focused on what God wants me to do than it does when I'm focused on what God wants me to do. Because Christ absorbs the kick. And if he doesn't, then you have to deal with it. And that's where the great peace comes in. What does it matter? I mean, no matter what anybody says about you, no matter what they invite you to something or not, that they do whatever you didn't like that they did, do you still get to go to heaven? Does God still love you? Your dog probably still does. You got everything going for you. What's the point? Great principle in Proverbs. The mind of God. The mind of God. Well, we'll hold up there.